Father, we thank you for this morning, God, that we can call on the one who is our cornerstone, God, our rock, God, the one who keeps us stable through the storms. Father, we thank you for your presence. God, we just ask that you'd speak to our hearts this morning, God, as we hear your word. God, do what you want to do in us. God, we love you. And God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We appreciate you guys praying for the Brewers this past week. We, uh, it was a pretty difficult week. We believe things are moving along nicely, and the Lord's done some wonderful things. But we do appreciate your prayers and many of your calls and text messages and thoughts last week. Thank you very much. So we're doing a stewardship series. And there's no question that our giving is a good indicator of our faith. Our giving is a good indicator of our spiritual condition. It's a good indicator of our heart. And it's a good indicator of where we are in Christ. Not only do we need to consider the amount of giving that we are involved with, but we also, as we'll see today, need to consider the atmosphere, the heart, the emotion, um, the motivation of our giving to help us to understand, help us to see our relationship with God, our relationship with his spirit, and to see whether or not our heart is in the right place. So probably one of the best places in the Bible for us to see what it means to have a right heart for giving is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It's really, to me, a strange place to see that because the Corinthians had so many problems. Man, when you read through 1st and 2nd Corinthians, they had problems with leadership. They had problems with fellowship. They had problems with uh, sexual immorality. They had uh, problems with uh, greed and the gifts and all the things that make up the body of Christ. They struggled. Uh, Paul has to speak to them very directly and oftentimes very pointedly and harshly because they were really messed up. And so it's very interesting to see uh, the progress, I think you can say, that the Holy Spirit made in the life of the Corinthian church because they are highlight, highlighted here as a gospel giving congregation. Uh, people that want to give for the right reason, with the right heart, and the right mindset. Now, the problem is, the difficulty is, the need is, the Jerusalem Christians were really having a hard time. Now, because of Jesus, because they were followers of him, they lost their ability to make a living. They were outcasts with the Romans and with the Jewish leadership. And so they just couldn't do business anymore. So if you were a plumber and you were in Jerusalem as a plumber, they would no longer call you to fix their bad pipes. If you were a, a horse trainer, they would no longer let you train their horses. If you were a farmer, they would no longer buy your produce because you were a follower of Jesus. And so what happened in the, the, among the believers in Jerusalem, their ability to make a living just dried up. 
And so they're in great need. They are hungry. They are without means to support themselves. And so Paul takes it upon himself, led of the Lord, I suppose, without any question, to, to raise up an offering from the other believers through the world at that time so that they could help the, the, the Christians in Jerusalem to be able to survive. And so this conversation that we're going to have today is a result of believers giving to the needs of the believers in Jerusalem. Okay, and the lessons that we can learn from their heart, from their spirit of giving. Verse one, I really don't need to write to you about this ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem, for I know how eager you are to help. And I have been boasting to the churches in Macedonia that you in Greece, which would be Corinth, were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many of the Macedonian believers to begin giving. So you see three things here that mark these Corinthian believers. Number one, they were ready to give. They couldn't wait to give. They heard about the need in Jerusalem, and it moved them, and they believed they were called on to do something about it. So they're eager to give as well. They're ready to give, and they're eager to give. There's an enthusiasm with them about giving. Some congregations, when they take up the offering, a party breaks out. Did you know that? If you've been to uh, some African congregations, if you've been to some uh, uh, South American uh, uh, congregations, you will see that it is very different for them when it's time to take up the offering versus what it's like for us to take up the offering. We take up the offering at the end after the sermon, which is not a good business plan if you think about that. You ever thought about that? The man gets up there and he tells us what the word says. He tells us what the Bible says. And we have great conviction. And he says, oh, by the way, dig in deep and give. Not a good business plan. That's one of the reasons why I think not teaching the scripture is so popular today. Because telling people what they want to hear is a better business plan for the offering. But that's just not God's way. But I digress, and what I was trying to tell you was that there's a celebration and a party in many congregations when it's time for the offering. There's enthusiasm. There's celebration. Many congregations, they leave the plates up at the front, and they start playing some real uh, good boot-scooting music, we might call it, or some toe-stepping music, or, or some real good beats. And I mean, there's some dancing going on, coming on down the aisle to give the offering. It's really, really an awesome, awesome experience. And truly, that's the way it ought to be. Now, we might not be able to really keep time, as some folks can, but we can two-step. Probably most of us here could two-step. So from now on, we're just going to put the offering plates here on the front, and we're going to play some good two-step music, and we uh, are expecting you to two-step all the way down the aisle with your offering. No, you're not. No, you're not. If we did that today, you wouldn't do it. I've heard that before. But we ought to celebrate 
and there ought to be enthusiasm. Now, something else here that we find in verses 1 and 2, that that enthusiasm and that eagerness and that readiness to give, it stirred up many Macedonian believers to begin giving. It encouraged them. It motivated them. They saw the heart of the Corinthians. They heard about the heart of the Corinthians, and it stirred in them a desire to give. That's what the Holy Spirit is always doing. I, I really think that's probably one of the main motivations of a lot of believers giving. Now, we understand God's Word says for us to give. We understand that. We, under, we understand that God's word says that he loves the cheerful giver, as we'll talk about today. We understand what God's word says, but oftentimes when that word is presented, that seed is planted in us, the, the motivation to follow through and to be a true heartfelt giver for God is when you see other people giving. And you know that other people uh, have an opportunity. Now, we are attempting to raise $600,000 in, in the next few weeks, months perhaps, to pay for the things that we need to pay for to help us do a better job, have the tools that are needed to have a more useful ministry to teach our children about Jesus and grow them up and get them ready for what comes after that. Now, don't anyone give the 600000 Give us, the rest of us a chance to give. All right? But if you do give the $600,000, we will move on and do some other projects. <laughs> nah. Your giving is going to inspire others to give. Your enthusiasm towards this project is going to inspire other people to get involved with it. There are some that heard Alan this morning and went, oh gosh, here we go. I just started attending this church and here they are in a building program, a, a campaign, a financial campaign, and all they do is talk about money. Now I can tell you that that's not the truth, that it's been a long time since we've done one, but that's not your situation because you're here today and this is maybe the first time or the second time or the third time you've ever listened to me and one third of the times I'm talking about money. Well, we are. And we're talking about things that are beneficial and useful and is going to make a difference. And, and we are not, we do not, we're not going to borrow any money. And so we need to get ourselves prepared to give the money and pay for it and get it done very quickly. And one of the reasons is, not the pocketbook is not the best reason, but one of the best reasons is it motivates other believers to give. There's no telling what the Holy Spirit might do if we have a, uh, an unusual, faithful, generous response to this, build, this financial campaign. When that word travels, no telling what the Lord might do with it because he did it here. The second thing is you have willing giving. In verse 3, "...but I am sending these brothers to be sure you really are ready." little accountability is being set along the way. Now, Paul knows, like you perhaps might know, that preachers often have different assignments. Sometimes the preacher is a reminder. 
And, and he reminds the people that they need to be faithful in their giving. I recognize that. Sometimes I'm a reminder. Sometimes the preacher is a rebuker. It's his assignment from God's word, led by his spirit, to rebuke people that they have not been faithful in their tithes and offerings. And oftentimes the passage that speaks to that is Malachi chapter 3, when it says people have robbed God. How have we robbed God? He said in your tithes and your offerings. So sometimes the preacher is used to rebuke. And that rebuke is take a look at your giving. Are you faithful? Are you faithfully giving as you have been given to? Are you a faithful steward? And so that's my opportunity today to look and see here that in this accountability, we need to ask ourselves that question, are we spending our money properly? Are we good stewards and manager what God has given us? He says from accountability here, I am sending these brothers to be sure you really are ready. As I have been telling them, and that your money is all collected. Now, here we see him using another responsibility that he has, and that is encouraging. He's encouraging the people to do what God has already instructed them to do. And so here, he's not perhaps reminding, he's not rebuking. Here, he's encouraging them. He's instructing them, of course, but he's encouraging them to do what they have already believed in their heart they needed to do. I don't want to be wrong in my boasting about you. We would be embarrassed. Man, that's right up front. That's, that's the truth, isn't it? Now, Paul's saying, I've told lots of people about you Corinthians and how you're going to give an unusual offering to meet the needs of the people in crisis in Jerusalem. Now, if you don't follow through, we're going to be embarrassed. I'm going to be embarrassed. You're going to be embarrassed. That's what he says here. So he says, follow through. Let's not be embarrassed. In verse 4, we would be embarrassed not to mention your own embarrassment if some Macedonian believers came with me and found that you weren't ready after all, as I've told them you were. So I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready, and I want it to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. Willing versus grudgingly. He desired a willing gift. He desired a gospel gift or a grace gift, not a guilt gift. Now, there's a real difference between guilt giving and gospel giving. Now, when it comes budget time, when it comes to thinking about the budget, when it comes to paying bills in the church, I'll be honest with you, I desire gospel giving, I desire grace giving, but if we can't get gospel giving and grace giving, guilt giving will work for a while. <laughs> and a lot of people give out of guilt and not out of the gospel. And I want to encourage you. I want to rebuke you. I want to remind you. I want to instruct you today to consider gospel giving and not guilt giving. But if you're not there yet, still give out of guilt today. 
And hopefully one day you're going to get there. Guilt giving is based on I have to, I ought to, I'm obligated to. Gospel giving is based on I want to. Really a difference there. Guilt giving focuses on how, on how wrong we are, what's not right with us. Gospel giving focuses on how God is so good and wonderful and at work. Guilt giving works for a week or so. This is how it happens. The budget people come to the pastor and say, Pastor, our, our, our offerings are looking awful low. Summer is coming. You know, those electric bills sure go up in the summertime. And, and y'all have the, week, the church open all week long for Adventure Week and Bible School. And we run those big old air conditioners. You need to raise an offering. We need to get more offerings in here. And so the preacher works on him a nice guilt-giving sermon to hopefully pad the bank account so you can have enough money to pay the light bill through the summer. And he lays it all out there. It's laden with guilt because he wants to get the stewardship people off his back, and he didn't want to go to any more of those meetings where they beat him up or what God's people are not doing by George. And, and guilt is laid out there thick. And for a couple weeks, usually it's not that Sunday, by the way, but for a couple weeks after that, there might be a spike in the giving, and guilt often works for a week or so. But the wonderful thing about gospel giving, it's for the long haul. When there are gospel givers, you don't have to have those guilt Sundays to meet the payroll, to meet electricity needs. Guilt giving is for a short time. Guilt giving lacks, uh, uh, lacks joy. It lacks enthusiasm. And gospel giving is a result of joy. Guilt giving will be how much we can keep. Gospel giving will be on how much we can give. Guilt giving is an earth-based mindset. Gospel giving is a heaven-based mindset. Guilt giving is for the church and budget. Gospel giving is for the kingdom. A very big difference there. Guilt giving is a negotiation with God. Lord, if I give this much, will you do this for me? If, I, if I'm able to give this much this month, will you meet this need that I have? Gospel giving is without terms. It's without terms. Guilt giving is based on just enough to keep the doors open. Gospel giving is for the overflow that is going to take place when God is doing what he desires to accomplish. Guilt giving lacks a real involvement. And gospel giving is right in the middle of his purpose. Give, guilt giving is every now and then sporadic. Gospel giving is consistent. Listen to this one. This is a very true statement. Guilt giving has more to do with the popularity of the pastor, the staff, and the church. And gospel giving has more to do with one's view of Jesus. That's why if the pastor is popular, the budget might be able to roll by every now and then, but there's always going to be limits on that. And that pastor has got to walk a thin line not to upset anyone because then the, the offerings go down. Now, gospel givers 
never have these kind of conversations. If we'll all pull together and if we'll withhold our tithe, that'll be a lot of pressure on that preacher and we can get rid of that old boy. Y'all realize that happens all the time in churches. I'm going to hold the money. I'm going to hold my money until he leaves. And when another one comes, they'll be, we'll put all that money in the offering plate again. And man, everybody will like him because they'll think that he brought in all that money. And we'll be off to a good start with a new pastor. That's not gospel giving. That's not for Jesus. That's for an agenda. Guilt giving lacks power. Gospel giving sees testimony and sees God's motivation, uh, multiplication power. Guilt giving focuses on what one can see. Gospel focuses on what can't be seen. Guilt giving ain't no fun. Gospel giving is full of fun and joy. And so here he says, I want it to be a gospel gift, not a guilt gift. Not a grudging gift, but a willing gift. And then in verse 6 he says, Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. Right there in the middle of this, Paul lays out some real spiritual meat here. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. Now, you would say, duh, doesn't that make sense? Duh, doesn't that make sense? Right? We say that makes sense in the farming world, but doesn't that make sense in the spiritual world? You sow a little, you're going to get a little. You sow a little, you're going to harvest a little. That's just the principle. You sow a generous amount, the opportunity is there to reap a generous amount, a harvest, a generous amount. That's what God's Word says. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. There you go. Guilt giving is reluctant giving. Guilt giving is a response to pressure. No pressure. No dog and pony show. No guilt being laid down. Give as you believe God wants you to give in your heart. Now, two weeks ago, I shared with you, does a preacher practice what he preaches about giving? And I told you about our giving. But I didn't tell you the last one because I wanted to tell you today. Susan and I tithe and we give offerings. We figure out how much income is coming in. We look at that as 10%, and that's our tithe. We give offerings. We give to the Welches with Crew Ministry. We give to Christian Compassion, International Compassion, with a young child in Indonesia taking care of her. We give monthly to Elizabeth's Voice, to the ministry to take care of the ladies there in Uganda. We give tithes and we give offerings. Susan and I love to give money to young people who are going on a mission trip uh, because to, to help with what 
Alan was talking about today, 70% of young people that go off to college fall away from the things of the Lord. The, the, the other side of that statistic is this, that the young people that are involved in mission work and are on mission while they're in high school, they are less likely to go a different way when they're in college. And so I believe one of the greatest discipleship devices we have is sending kids on mission trips. And so we love to give for high school kids and for college kids to go on mission trips. That's what we do. And because I knew we were coming to this, Susan and I have just begun giving to the $600,000 that we're wanting to uh, raise here in the next few weeks. That's what we do. And so I tell you that to say, hey, we practice what we preach. I really believe that. I, I, obviously, I said, well, you ought to give more. That's not what the Lord has instructed us to do. We ask the Lord, what are we going to do? How much do we give? We do what it says here is we decide in our heart through that relationship with our Father how much to give. We don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. That's what we should do. That's willing giving. Willing giving. Verses then 8 through 15. And God will generously provide all you need. That's a sermon right there, isn't it? Let that sink in. Let that soak in for a moment. It says there in verse 7, you must each decide in your heart how much to give and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. God loves a person who gives cheerfully. That's where God wants us to be. He wants us to transition from guilt to gospel, from guilt to grace giving. And God will generously provide all you need. Notice the word need is there. The word want is not there. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. If there's not plenty left over to share with others, that's because you're living by what you want, not by what you need. And there's a real difference with that. So God's word tells us, that if we give with a cheerful heart and we give what is in our heart to give is, is from the Lord, then he will meet the needs that we have and there will be some left over to help other people in need. As the scripture says, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. That's God's plan. We are faithful stewards with what God gives us to live on, and we're faithful with that, and we bless other people. And God is worshiped and glorified based on that testimony. It says in verse 10, For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. That's what God does. Now, that's a faith tester. That's a trust tester. Are you depending upon God to meet your needs? 
Well, the indicator is your faithfulness with your money, with his money in your life. Are you willing? Are you reluctant? Are you gospel or guilt in regard to giving? Are, are you trusting him? Are you, are you able to give in such a way that it shows that you truly trust the Lord? For some people, that number is a lot larger. For other people, it's not the amount. It's giving according to our ability. That's the, the, the issue of the faith that is there. It says in verse 11, Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. So two things are going to happen as a result of this generous giving. That is, the needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met and there will be great praise and worship as testimony will generate praise and worship from this giving. Verse 13, as a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace God has given to you. Then he concludes this with these wonderful words, these soul-stirring words, I believe. Thank God for this gift, which, by the way, is too wonderful for words. That's what Paul saw happening. This gospel giving of these Corinthians, this giving beyond their ability, this giving with, with willingness, not reluctant, this gospel giving, this grace giving, the results of this giving is just too wonderful for words. I heard this week about the result of gospel giving and how it's really just too wonderful for words. So let me tell you what happened and you will see that it's too wonderful for words. So, Many of you have, have heard about Amy's, Amy Brewer's ministry, Elizabeth's Voice, and that through her connections and her time in Uganda, the Lord has positioned her, and her ministry, this, this, this movement, uh, hires uh, uh, widowed ladies, divorced ladies, ladies who are unable to make a living there in Uganda. They are poor. It is extreme poverty. They don't have enough money to eat. They, they have children to take care of. And it's part of the situation there in Uganda where the men do not take care of their responsibility. And there are many, many hundreds, thousands, don't tell how many ladies that are absolutely broken in Uganda. It's a horrible condition. And, and she has... Uh, over 20-something employees now making those beads, those bracelets, those uh, necklaces, the baskets, and all those things that they sell. And, and her, the, 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 the product that she sells here 
is gone back and it makes orders more product. And so she's got all these ladies working. Well, now there's a rural village that Evelyn, who's a leader of the African group uh, in this ministry, where she's from. And on a trip back to see her family, they got to talking and, and there are lots of homeless, uh, broken, uh, real uh, uh, poverty-stricken ladies in that village. They beg for food. They, they get people's leftovers every now and then. People will give them some, some different uh, staples of the African diet and things like that. And they're, they're just, they don't have the kind of social programs that we have. And those needs are greater. And so uh, they said, let's, let's hire some of these ladies uh, to make some of the bees. We'll teach them how to make it. We'll employ them and we'll pay them by the piece and they can have some income. And so they've been doing that. And they now have 12 ladies in that village who are working, making different products. And, 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 and their income, I mean, their quality of their life has improved. And, and so Amy went there this week and she went to meet those ladies again, check on the ladies and love on them and help them and, and spend time with them. And they have taken in, they are feeding, they are caring for 16 orphans. That is too beautiful for words, isn't it? That's too beautiful for words. That's even too beautiful for uh, a real reserve clap. One person claps and everybody else claps, but we're not really committed to the clap, and so we halfway clap. And so I'm going, they didn't like that very much, did they? It's a reserve clap among the white people at Church of the Crossing. But isn't that a beautiful story? And so ladies who couldn't feed themselves two years ago, who can now feed themselves because they are being employed, are now feeding 16 Homeless, orphan children. Amen. That was better. Thank God for this gift. Too wonderful for words. I do like the disciple Peter. I think that he reminds me of a lot of men I know, perhaps even myself. And Peter asked Jesus, he said, now, Jesus, we've left family, we've left home, we've left businesses, we've, we've left all that we know for you. What's in it for us? We think we're not supposed to ask that question. Now, if you really love Jesus, you don't ask that question. But Jesus didn't rebuke Peter. Jesus didn't say, Peter, you no good scoundrel. You worm, none of that happened. It was a good question at an appropriate time. And Jesus answered him. What's in it for us? What's in it for us? What's in it for me, Lee, if, if, if I give a tithe and I give offerings and, and I put my family through that? Just, just say that's the mindset right now. What's in it for us? Well, 
What's in it for me that I can't go buy a newer vehicle, that I've got to buy a used one? What's in it for us that maybe we can't upgrade in our house and we've got to settle for a smaller one? What's in it for us that maybe we don't buy the trendy bag, we might buy the lower bag, or maybe not buy the bag at all? What's in it for us? Jesus' answer was this. You will get 100 times more than you've given here on this side of eternity. Think about that. Peter, you're going to get 100 times more. 100 times more. You're going to get 100 times more. He didn't say it was money. He didn't say it was spirit. He didn't say it was joy. He didn't say it was contentment. He didn't say it was prosperity. He didn't say what it was. He just said you can get 100 times more. Now, I believe it's the things that money can't buy. And a hundred times more contentment than we had before is worth every dime. A hundred times more joy is worth every dime. A hundred times more peace is worth every dime. A hundred times more contentment is worth every dime. Worth every dime. And then he said, and eternal life. Isn't that worth every dime? Isn't that worth every gift, every sacrifice? Isn't that worth everything that we deny ourselves are for Jesus? 100 times more and eternal life. That's what you get. That's a pretty good deal. Jesus really is better than anything else. It's beyond anyone's ability to express. Be a faithful giver. It's worth every dime. Help us, Lord. Help us be faithful. Help us, Lord, to be responsible for what you have provided for. Help us, Lord, be part of your economic system and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.